Hello, and welcome to the final edition of The More the Merrier with Donna G. Coming up on the show today, the focus will be audiobooks. The first half of the show will be more on the romantic side, while the second half of the show will be more of the mystery and adventure side. All the descriptions that you will be hearing and all the samples are taken from the Libby app. I will be using the Toronto Public Library, but you can use the Libby app with your local library. I'll be ending the show today with a track by Alex Bird and the Jazz Mavericks called Where the Blackbird Sings. The show is going to run through right to the end because I just want you to focus and relax. If you're listening live, it's Christmas Day and you don't need me intruding. See you next year. Bye-bye. To all the boys I've loved before meets You've Got Mail in this charming and hilarious rom-com following two teen booksellers whose rivalry is taken to the next level as they compete for the top bookseller bonus. The book is recommended for you by Laura Silverman. Shoshana Greenberg loves working at Once Upon, her favorite local bookstore. And with her moms fighting at home and her beloved car teetering on the brink of death, the store has become a welcome escape. When her boss announces a holiday bonus to the person who sells the most books, Shoshana sees an opportunity to at least fix her car, if none of her other problems. The only person standing in her way? New hire, Jake Kaplan. Jake is an affront to everything Shoshana stands for. He doesn't even read, but somehow his sales start to rival hers. Jake may be cute, really cute, And he may be an eligible Jewish single, hard to find in South Atlanta, but he's also the enemy, and Shoshana is ready to take him down. But as the competition intensifies, Jake and Shoshana grow closer and realize they might be more on the same page than either expects. Cantor Audio, a division of recorded books, presents Recommended for You by Laura Silverman. Narrated by Emily Lawrence. Chapter One Barbara Streisand grinds and grinds before sputtering to a stop. Ugh, I call out and then plead with my car. Barbara, sweetie. I place my hand on her dashboard and rub in soothing circles. I need you to start. I'm going to be late for work. Will you start for me? Pretty please? Okay. Ready? I turn the keys again. The grinding sound is worse this time. Metallic shrieking. Darn you! I yank out the key. It's a freezing December morning, and as I exhale, I can see my frosted breath. My phone buzzes with a text from Cheyenne. I just folded my 75th sweater of the morning. When do you get here? The mall opens earlier than usual this week for the Christmas rush. Cheyenne has already been folding clothes at the Gap for an hour, and I'm supposed to be at Once Upon, the independent bookstore I work at, in 20 minutes. I text back, hopefully soon. Barbara won't start. She replies, rough. I'll drive you home later. I send her an emoji kiss face, then step out of my car tug my coat tight, and hurry inside. Mom and Mama are still home, but the house is silent. I peek into the living room first, then the kitchen. Nothing. 
I fed upstairs to their room, but the door is shut. Muffled voices filter into the hallway at an inaudible murmur. Usually their door is open. Usually I'd waltz right inside and jump on their bed, playing with the tassels of a throw pillow while asking for a ride. But now their door is closed, dampening the tense voices inside. I take a short breath, then square my shoulders and knock with two quick raps. The voices stop, and moments later, Mom opens the door. We have the same brown eyes and the same curly brown hair, but her eyes are tired, and her hair is pulled back into a frizzy braid. It really needs a deep condition. I want to recommend a recipe for a great avocado hair mask I found online, but reading the room... Now is not the time for hair care essentials. Shoshana, Mom says, aren't you supposed to be at work? Her voice almost snaps, like she's mad at me or something. I fiddle with my Star of David necklace and rock back on my heels. Barbara won't start. Again. Can I get a ride to the mall? That car should have been junked years ago, Mom mutters. My pulse skips. She can't junk Barbara Streisand. Yes, she's old, passed down from my mom's to me, but I need a car, and my once-upon paycheck doesn't cover much more than gas and insurance. Um, I clear my throat. I don't want to be late. Christmas rush and all. Mama walks over to us. Her blonde hair is still wet from the shower, and she's wearing her silk peach bathrobe cinched lightly above her rounded hips. It's strange, both of them standing by the cracked door, their feet on their bedroom carpet, while I'm here in the hallway, boots on the hardwood floor. I wish I could take you, Mama says, but I'm teaching a class soon and need to get ready. Sorry, love. I give her a small smile. That's okay, Mama. Fine. Mom's voice does snap this time. I'll take you on the way to work, then. I'll be downstairs in five. Okay. I twist my fingers together. Thanks. Mom nods and slides back into the room, closing the door behind her. Their murmurs continue, slightly louder than before. I catch a snippet about dirty dishes. Dishes? Is that really why they're arguing? I walk downstairs, but instead of going straight to the garage, I head into the kitchen. The coffee pot sits in the sink. Next to it are a spoon and a mug with a- The Matzah Ball by Jean Meltzer. Oi to the world. Rachel Rubenstein Goldblatt is a nice Jewish girl with a shameful secret. She loves Christmas. For a decade, she's hidden her career as a Christmas romance novelist from her family. Her talent has made her a bestseller, even as her chronic illness has always kept the kind of love she writes about out of reach. But when her diversity-conscious publisher insists she writes a Hanukkah romance, her well of inspiration suddenly runs dry. Hanukkah's not magical. It's not merry. It's not Christmas. Desperate not to lose her contract, Rachel's determined to find her muse at the Matzvah Ball, a Jewish music celebration on the last night of Hanukkah, 
even if it means working with her summer camp archenemy, Jacob Greenberg. Though Rachel and Jacob haven't seen each other since they were kids, their grudge still glows brighter than a menorah. But as they spend more time together, Rachel finds herself drawn to Hanukkah and Jacob in a way she never expected. Maybe this holiday of lights will be the spark she needed to set her heart ablaze. Mira and Harper Audio present The Matzah Ball by Jean Meltzer. Performed by Dara Rosenberg. From Lisa Brown. L. Brown at cashingliteraryagency.com. To Rachel Rubenstein Goldblatt. Margot Cross at northpole.com. Send Thursday, December 9th. Subject Meeting tomorrow at Romance House. Hey, Rachel. Just a quick heads up that tomorrow's meeting at Romance House will be all hands on deck. Editorial, marketing, publicity, the whole team. Apparently, Chandra has something big in the works and wants you to be a part of it. She follows this up with eight dollar signs in parentheses. Make sure you bring your best ideas and plenty of that Christmas spirit. I'll see you in the lobby at 10. Lisa. P.S. Happy Hanukkah. I think it starts this Monday, right? One. She just needed one more. Rachel Rubenstein Goldblatt stared at the collection of miniature Christmas figurines spread across her desk. She owned 236 of the smiling porcelain Santas from the world-famous Holiday Dreams collection. When her best friend Mickey arrived, she would complete that collection with the addition of the coveted Margaritaville Santa. Oh, the Margaritaville Santa. How she had dreamed of the day when that tiny porcelain Santa in a Hawaiian shirt and wearing Ray-Ban sunglasses would sit atop her prized collection. Rachel had scoured eBay for the tiny limited edition figurine, set up price alerts and left frantic, somewhat drunken posts at three in the morning on collector blogs. Now, after six years, five months, and seven days of hunting, the Margaritaville Santa would finally be hers. The anxiety was killing her. Rachel glanced out the window of her apartment. It was snowing outside. Gentle flakes fell down onto Broadway and made New York City feel magical. She was wondering when Mickey would actually get here when there was a knock at the door. Finally, Rachel said. Excitement bubbled up inside her as she raced to the front door, throwing it open. And then, disappointment. Her mother stood in the threshold. I was in the neighborhood, she said. A perfectly innocent smile spread across her two round cheeks. Her mother was always in the neighborhood. It was one of the downsides of living on the Upper West Side, while her mother, a top New York fertility specialist, worked out of Columbia Hospital just ten blocks away. Rachel had to think quickly. She loved her mother and was even willing to entertain her completely intrusive and unannounced visits. But the door to her home office was still open. Mickey's about to stop by, Rachel warned. I won't be but a minute, her mother said, lifting up a plastic bag from Ruby's smoked fish shop as a peace offering. I brought you some dinner. Dr. Rubenstein pushed her way inside, letting her fingers graze the mezuzah on Rachel's doorpost before entering. Making her way straight to the refrigerator, she began unloading dinner. There was a large vat of chopped liver, two loaves of pumpernickel bread, three different types of rugelach, 
Dr. Rubenstein believed in feeding the people you love, and the love she had for her daughter was likely to end in heart disease. How are you feeling? Her mother inquired. Fine, Rachel said, using the opportunity to close her office door. Dr. Rubenstein looked up from the refrigerator. Her eyes rolled from Rachel's hair, matted and clumped, down to her wrinkled pink pajamas. She frowned. You look pale. I am pale, Rachel reminded her. Rachel, her mother said pointedly, you need to take your myalgic encephalomyelitis seriously. Rachel rolled her eyes. Outside, the gentle snow was gathering into a full-blown storm. Dr. Rubenstein was probably one of the few people who called Rachel's disease by its medical term. The name research scientists and experts preferred, describing the complex multi-system disease that affected her neurological, immune, autonomic, and metabolic systems. Most everyone else in the world knew it by the simple and distasteful moniker, chronic fatigue syndrome which was, quite possibly, the most trivializing name for a disease in the entire world, the equivalent of calling Alzheimer's Senior Moment Syndrome. It did not begin to remotely describe the crushing fatigue, migraines, brain fog, or weirdo pains that Rachel lived with daily. Christmas Eve at Cranberry Cross by Kate Forster An absolutely charming and uplifting Christmas love story of hope, forgiveness, and the true meaning of Christmas from the best-selling author of Starting Over at Acorn Cottage. No one loves Christmas more than editorial assistant Eve Pilkins, but when her boss hits her with a huge deadline on Christmas Day, it looks like Eve's favorite time of the year might be canceled. Armed with as much enthusiasm as she can muster, she travels to the coldest part of England tasked with ensuring brooding author Edward Priest finishes his latest novel on time. The festive spirit at Cranberry Cross is as dark as the house itself. Without a fairy light in sight, it looks like only a Christmas miracle can save this one. Will Eve be up to the task? Rosa Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Christmas Eve at Cranberry Cross by Kate Forster, narrated by Helen Keeley. Chapter One. But it's Christmas, Eve Pilkins cried. There are plenty of others wanting this job, Eve. Her boss, Serena Whitelaw, said, staring at Eve with such disdain that she wondered for the one hundredth time that day if Serena regretted hiring her and was looking for an excuse to fire her. But it's also my birthday on Christmas Eve. Serena shrugged her white silk-covered shoulders and pushed her tortoiseshell-rimmed glasses on top of her blonde head. Nobody cares about that anymore. Eve wasn't sure if Serena meant her birthday or Christmas, but was too afraid to ask. If you don't get Edward Priest to deliver this book, then it's on you. You can explain it at the redundancy party when we let you and many others go. Today was one of those work days where Eve wondered if she should just run away and open a cafe or a bakery like they do in the romance novels her company published. But then she remembered she couldn't bake or work a coffee machine. All she was good at was reading books, playing electric guitar and wrapping presents. What could Eve had said in reply to that? Two hundred jobs relied on this book. Was that even true? She knew Edward Priest's books were the money spinner for the company. His books sold faster than any adult book on record. And even though they weren't to Eve's tastes, she admired his dedication to research and to the dogged process of writing such enormous tomes. 
But Edward Priest didn't do interviews, and he didn't deal with anyone at the company but Serena Whitelaw, and that was only by phone. All she knew about Edward Priest was that he had made all the other editorial assistants cry, and that's why Serena personally managed him. Why can't you go? Eve had tentatively asked, and Serena had shot her a look that would have turned anyone else into a gelatinous mess. But Eve had survived them before and was sure she would survive this one. Because I'm going to New York for Christmas, she stated proudly. Edward has a lovely country estate in Northumberland, quite posh, I believe. But then you would have something grand with those royalties. Apparently the wife bought it, wanted to play the lady of the manor from what I heard. I've also heard she grew tired of that pretty quickly. When Eve had read The Devil Wears Prada, she had thought it read like a non-fiction book. Just change the names and change fashion to publishing. And that was Eve's working life at Henshaw and Carlson. One day, everything would be fine, meaning Serena was ignoring Eve. Then the next day, Serena would scream at Eve for not remembering that Serena's white Carolina Herrera shirt was waiting to be picked up from the dry cleaner. Even though Eve had no memory of being told that the blouse was at the cleaners and would need to be picked up. She had checked her texts, emails and phone messages and there was nothing about the blouse. In the end, Eve apologised and worked late to finish the edits on a book that Serena would then claim as her own work. Eve tuned out from Serena's gossip. Her boss was always indiscreet about her authors, but there wasn't much she could say about Edward, other than what anyone could read on the internet. Edward was married to a former supermodel from America, and they had a daughter, who was about seven or so, according to one of the magazine articles Serena sent her later, when she was back at her desk. Eve had wanted to cry, and then resign, or she wanted to resign and then cry, but instead, she took her phone and went into the bathroom. She put down the lid of the toilet, closed the door, and dialed her mum's number. The phone rang out, and Eve sat staring at the screen when her mum's face popped up with an incoming call. Hello, pet, she said. I was outside feeding the dogs before I head off to work. Everything all right? Donna Pilkins had four rescue dogs, and counting. She found them all on the streets, watching them beg or dodge the cars and buses as she drove the number 23 bus through Leeds. She would go back after her shift and gain their trust with her gentle nature and treats. They seemed to be very fond of her rissoles, which was understandable. She had inherited the recipe from her grandmother, who had always said it was the Worcestershire sauce that made them so Moorish. Clearly, the dogs agreed, as she had rescued 12 in all and kept four. Eve felt the tears release. I can't come home for Christmas, she sobbed. What? Why? Serena is making me work. Go to an author's house and edit as he writes. It's awful. She's awful. Donna sighed. Oh, dear me. That's a nasty thing to do to someone, and on the birthday, too. Did you tell her it was your birthday on Christmas Eve? Mum, she doesn't care. Wrapped Up in You by Talia Hibbert from USA Today bestselling author Talia Hibbert comes a festive love story perfect for fans of Sally Thorne, Kate Claiborne, and the Brown Sisters trilogy. William Reed is nothing special, except for his billion-dollar acting career and his, you know, face. Apparently, it's a good one. Winning Sexiest Man Alive was nice, but this Christmas, he has more important goals in mind like finally winning over his lifelong crush and best friend's twin sister, the super smart and kind of scary Abby Farrell. 
When a blizzard leaves Will and Abby alone at Grandma Farrell's house, if bunking with 27 pets counts as alone, it's the perfect opportunity to pull off a Christmas miracle. Convincing clever, frosty Abby to give Will a chance will take more than mistletoe, but hiding his lifelong crush on her is no longer an option. Just a heads up that the sample that you're about to hear includes one mention of the F word. Kobo Originals presents Wrapped Up in You. Written by Talia Hibbert and read by Selena Scott Benin and Philip Batley. One. From at Do You Read Me? Union Jack emoji, Union Jack emoji, Union Jack emoji. From at Abigail, welcome home. I come bearing biscuits. Abigail Farrell stopped typing numbers into her spreadsheet du jour, removed her cat eye spectacles, and massaged the bridge of her nose. Hard. Chitra, she said. Remember our little chat the other day about how you're too pregnant to trek across campus every time you fancy a tea break and you should stay in the biology block and call me instead? Chitra, who was round and glowing and far too pleased with herself, gave a derisive snort. I can't say I remember that, no. How convenient, Abby murmured darkly. But I do remember telling you that I need to stretch my legs more, so shut up. Chitra plopped takeout cups from the school's canteen onto Abby's desk, shoving administrative paperwork out of the way in a flash of mauve nails and gold bangles. Then she sank into one of Abby's office chairs and propped her ankle-booted feet up on the other. How goes the world of office management, my darling? Swimmingly, Abby said. Because everything she organized went swimmingly, except for Chitra, who unfortunately refused to be controlled. How goes the world of coralline whiny brats? Chitra arched a dark eyebrow. You're convincing no one with that I hate kids routine. I know you keep a tub of sweets under your desk for any lost 12-year-olds. Oh dear. If that information were widely known, it would completely undo the fuck-off-and-leave-me-alone aura Abby had cultivated with her colleagues. Next thing you knew, people would be popping by her office for chats at all hours. She made a mental note to hide the box of celebrations better and wear more aggressive eyeliner. I will neither confirm nor deny that accusation. You're ridiculous. Drink your tea and have a biscuit, you dizzy cow. Grudgingly, Abby obeyed. The tea was rather nice. The canteen staff had added cinnamon in deference to the festive season, which was about as much Christmas spirit as she could stand. I have news, by the way, Chitra said biting into a gingerbread shape like Santa's head. Hmm, do tell. According to my Instagram feed, Will Reed has been spotted at LAX. His fangirls reckon he's coming home for Christmas. Isn't that nice? Abby wasn't surprised by this information. She'd already known, courtesy of the three Union Jack emojis Will himself had sent her an hour ago. But she was conscious of the fact that Chitra didn't really care about Will Reed. Chitra cared about Abby's reactions to Will Reed, and occasionally she mentioned him in leading tones while studying Abigail carefully, as if waiting for some sort of meaningful response, which was ridiculous and pointless, since there was no meaning of any kind to be found in Abby's responses to Will. In order to prove as much, she sipped her tea and murmured dryly, 
Ah, uh, I thought you meant interesting news. Chitra's unsubtle examination dissolved as she laughed around a mouthful of biscuit. Don't let anyone else hear you dismiss our city's greatest success. They might excommunicate you. She did not exaggerate. It wasn't often a small city like Nottingham produced America's third favorite British heartthrob, as voted by the readers of E-Online. Lowering her voice, Chitra went on. I take it you'll see him at Christmas? Abby opened her mouth to dispense an appropriately sarcastic reply. Unfortunately, instead of offering words, her brain helpfully produced a series of images instead. Will Reed's familiar million-dollar face smiling just for her. His literal superhero body sitting on the floor beside her grandma's Christmas tree. His hands, the same hands that had entire social media accounts dedicated to them, reaching for the clay ornaments they'd made together when they were twelve. Yes, she said finally. The word a little hoarse. Yes, I'll, I'll see him at Christmas. Always would. From at Do You Read Me. Is that a Christmas party I see in your story? From at Do You Read Me. I didn't know you went to those. From at Abigail. Hardy ha, it's a work thing. Chitra forced me. Jingle All the Sleigh by Dakota Cassidy. Welcome to Marshmallow Hollow, Maine, where it's all Christmas all the time and murder is hung by the chimney with care. I'm Halliday Valentine, a psychic witch who's recently moved from New York City back to my very human hometown of Marshmallow Hollow, where I run the family factory that caters to all things Christmas. I inherited the factory from mom, who inherited from Nana Karen, but now it's just me, my curmudgeonly British familiar hummingbird Atticus, one ungrateful rescue cat, my talking reindeer Karen, and my BFF Styles, the only human aware of my witchy side. Oh, and Digby Dainty, known as Hobbs, the tall drink of water who rents my guest cottage. We have a lot in common, including a love of true crime. So as macabre as it sounds, when a shady real estate tycoon shows up dead in the middle of the annual ice festival, I'm thrilled to spend time with Hobbs, flexing our amateur sleuthing skills. Well, not thrilled. I mean, a guy's dead after all. In fact, the only thing more surprising than a murder in our charming Christmas town is how many of my friendly, beloved neighbors seem to want the man dead. Pantor Audio, a division of recorded books, presents Jingle All the Sleigh, Marshmallow Hollow Mysteries, Book One, by Dakota Cassidy, narrated by Holly Jackson. Chapter One The little lights are not twinkling. Art, as played by E.G. Marshall. Christmas Vacation, 1989. Phil, spit Atticus out this second or you're in for a serious catnip dry spell. The muffled, angry cries of my small but opinionated familiar, Atticus Finch, currently trapped inside my beloved Phil's mouth, had me on the floor, wrestling the ladder as though he were a saber-toothed tiger instead of an eight-pound mongrel of a savage attack cat. 
I squatted in front of him in the middle of the pool of twinkling white lights I'd been draping across the fireplace mantle and began to pry Phil's mouth open with my fingers. His one snaggletooth scraped my skin, making me hiss. Ow! Motherf-Halliday, Valentine, do not, or I shall use the antibacterial soap this time, and I've heard that bloody well stings. Atticus cautioned in his deep voice, muffled, probably, by Phil's tonsils. Even from the interior of my cat's mouth, he was always there, ready to remind me he'd wash my mouth out with soap. Empty threats, mind you. Addy is the disciplinarian he thinks I never had, but he's really an old softy. Oh, Atticus, do you want to live or do you want me to refrain from using foul language? I gasped as Phil clamped his jaw even tighter and lifted his chin in defiance. Digging my heels into the floor, I bracketed Phil's back end with the side of my foot to get some leverage so he couldn't get away and attempted to pull his mouth open again. He loved a good game of cat and mouse, or, in this case, cat and the arrogant, very British, decidedly uptight hummingbird. Finally, I managed to wedge a finger between his teeth and was just able to see enough of Atticus's long beak to start threatening. Spit him out now, Phil! How many times have I told you? You can't eat the familiar! As though he truly understood me, and don't for one second think I don't believe Phil understands everything I say, he opened his mouth with a lazy yawn as though he was doing so not because I asked, but because he'd grown bored with the game. Atticus shot out of Phil's mouth like a cannonball, rising in the air to just near my head where his tiny hummingbird wings furiously flapped in all their glorious red and green colors. You repscallion! He spat in his uncharacteristically deep voice, a ripple of feathers sounding in my ears as he shuddered. Honestly, Halliday, must we keep him? He's nothing but a ruthless, untrainable monster. Chuckling, I held out my finger so Atticus had a place to land and catch his breath. I think, after almost a year, we're past the point of deciding whether we'll keep him, don't you, Addie? He's sort of family now. And we what? With family? I asked, pausing before providing the answer. We never give up on them. Or in this case, as you so helpfully suggested, take them to a rest area off the turnpike and dump them so they can be someone else's problem. That's what. I refute that statement. I most assuredly did not say dump. I said gently boot from the car. And it was merely a suggestion because he's insufferable, Halliday. A mangy, thankless shedder of hair, and I will not tolerate being jammed inside his rank, tuna-riddled maw whenever the mood strikes. Phil, a.k.a. Hummingbird Assassin, is my ungrateful rescue. A scraggly orange and white short hair with ears the size of satellite dishes and a narrow face. I'm sure if he could talk, he'd tell you I should have left him out in the bitter, cold main night to starve and die rather than give him a home where he's on the receiving end of plenty of food, vet visits, and all the love any one feline could ever dream of. In fact, if Phil could talk, he'd likely tell you he'd simply been resting when I happened upon him in a four-foot-high snowbank near frozen to death. He'd also tell you he needs nothing and no one, unless the mood strikes him. And it doesn't strike often, believe me.
Sherlock Holmes and the Christmas Demon by James Lovegrove. It is 1890, and in the days before Christmas, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are visited at Baker Street by a new client. Eve Allerthorpe, eldest daughter of a grand but somewhat eccentric Yorkshire-based dynasty, is greatly distressed as she believes she is being haunted by a demonic Christmas spirit. Her late mother told her terrifying tales of the sinister Black Thurrick, and Eve is sure that she has seen the creature from her bedroom window. What is more, she has begun to receive mysterious parcels of birch twigs, the Black Thurrick's calling card. Eve stands to inherit a fortune if she is sound of mind, but it seems that something or someone is threatening her sanity. Holmes and Watson travel to the Allerthorpe family seat at Fellscar Keep to investigate, but soon discover that there is more to the case than at first appeared. There is another spirit haunting the family, and when a member of the household is found dead, the companions realize that no one is beyond suspicion. Blackstone Publishing presents Sherlock Holmes and the Christmas Demon by James Lovegrove. This book is read by Dennis Kleinman. Chapter One, A Felonious Father Christmas. Father Christmas, hold right there. These words were delivered by Sherlock Holmes in his most stentorian and authoritative tone of voice. The object of his command, however, did not heed it. On the contrary, the festively clad fugitive lowered his head and increased his speed. The ground floor of Berg and Harmanswick, the noted Oxford Street department store, was crowded with shoppers, for it was December 19th, and all of London, it seemed, was out buying gifts and other seasonal essentials. There were shouts of consternation and the occasional shriek of alarm as the man dressed as Father Christmas, complete with ivy-green robe and mistletoe crown, hurtled through the milling throng. Those who did not get out of his way of their own volition, he barged aside with a ruthless thrust of the forearm. Several men and women, and even a child, found themselves on the receiving end of such rough treatment. Holmes was hard on his heels, and would have overtaken him halfway across the haberdashery department had a shop clerk not intervened. The young fellow, dressed in an apron with characters B and H emblazoned on the pocket, misread the situation and identified Holmes as the villain of the piece. Boldly, he stepped into my friend's path and made strenuous efforts to waylay him. With as much delicacy as the situation permitted, Holmes disentangled himself from the clerk's clutches and continued after his quarry. The delay cost him precious seconds, however, and now Father Christmas was nearing one of the sets of doors that afforded access to the street. Nought lay between him and freedom, save for one thing, me. I'd been guarding the door for the past half an hour. Inspector Lestrade and a number of police constables, all in plain clothes, were likewise stationed at the other points of egress around the building. As luck would have it, the onus of intercepting our felon now rested upon me. It was not a task I relished, since the man was nothing short of a giant, six feet seven tall if he was an inch, and broad as a barrel around the chest. 
He weighed, I would estimate, in the region of seventeen stone, and to judge by his speed, was possessed of considerable strength and vitality, not to mention a determination to evade capture that bordered on desperation. I braced myself as he approached, feeling the way a matador must when confronted with a charging bull. Father Christmas's cheeks, above his bushy white beard, were crimson with exertion. His eyes, beneath the mistletoe crown, glared like a madman's. His nostrils flared. I had faced men of similar stature on the rugby pitch, and duly adopted a half-crouch as one might when preparing to tackle an oncoming flanker. Father Christmas, on seeing me, did not falter. If anything, he accelerated. Watson, Holmes called out from behind him. He's yours. Deal with him, would you? There's a good fellow. All might have been well had I not, in the heat of the moment, made a crucial mistake, namely leading with my injured shoulder. When playing rugby, I was always at pains to tackle an opponent using my good shoulder, the one that had not received a bullet from a Giselle rifle wielded by a Ghazi sniper in Afghanistan. On this occasion, I neglected to take the precaution. I drove the bad shoulder hard into Father Christmas's midriff. The collision saw both of us tumble to the floor, and the wind was certainly knocked out of Father Christmas's sails, and for that matter his lungs, but alas, I myself was rendered helpless too. My wounded shoulder seized up from the impact, feeling as though it was suddenly gripped in a vice. I could do nothing but roll on my back, clutch the offending area, and clench my teeth, hissing with pain. Giving vent to a roar of indignation, Father Christmas regained his feet. At that moment, Holmes at last caught up. Without hesitation, he pounced, driving the giant back down to the floor. They followed a brief struggle, which ended with Holmes enfolding his opponent in a complicated Biritsu wrestling hole. The Usual Santas, a collection of Soho Crime Christmas Capers. Forward by Peter Lovesy. 16 delightful holiday short stories by some of your favorite Soho Crime authors. This captivating collection of short mysteries and crime capers, which features New York Times bestselling authors, Crime Writers Association Gold and Diamond Dagger winners, and Edgar Award nominees, contains Laughs Aplenty, the most hard-boiled of holiday noir, and heartwarming reminders of the spirit of the season. Nine mall Santas must find the imposter among them. An elderly lady seeks peace from her murderously loud neighbors at Christmas time. A young woman receives a mysterious invitation to Christmas dinner with a stranger. Niccolo Machiavelli sets out to save an Italian city. Sherlock Holmes's one-time nemesis, Irene Adler, finds herself in an unexpected tangle in Paris while on a routine espionage assignment. Jane Austen searches for the Dowager Duchess of Willoughby's stolen diamonds. And other adventures will whisk readers away to Christmas around the globe, from a Korean War POW camp to a Copenhagen refugee squat to a Thai street child's quest for the perfect gift for her friend. Recorded Books and RB Digital present The Usual Santas, a collection of Soho crime Christmas capers. Narrated by Ali Ahn, Barbara Caruso, Ryan Hutchison, John Keating, Corinne Montbertrand, 
Luis Moreno, Elizabeth Sastra, and Jonathan Yen. Forward by Peter Lovesey. Upon the first of all Christmases, St. Luke tells us, the angel of the Lord appeared at night to some startled shepherds in a field and informed them of the momentous event in the city of David. As if that were not enough of a shock, a multitude of the heavenly host then manifested itself, praising God and declaring, On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The world's religions almost all provide occasions for expressing goodwill toward men and women, most commonly in midwinter. The pagan festival of Yule predated Christmas. Worldwide celebrations around the year's end include Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Pancha Ganapati, and the Chinese New Year. Families come together, and there's a break from the monotony of work to indulge in ceremony, feasting, and the exchange of gifts. Disbelievers like me are only too happy to join in. Goodwill rules, but not without exception. Crime statistics spike at this time of year. The seasonal shopping spree provides rich pickings for thieves and fraudsters. Well-stocked stores become tempting targets for stick-up men and shoplifters. Pockets are picked, shoppers mugged, cars broken into, and Christmas tree plantations raided. Cybercriminals relieve the unwary of their savings. Scam emails masquerade as greetings cards. Empty homes are ransacked. Drink-fueled assaults are common. And even when the run-up to the holiday ends and the streets become more peaceful, domestic violence increases behind locked doors. Family feuds are revived by stressed-out, not-so-merry merrymakers. All of this is rich material for crime writers. I believe Christmas has inspired more short stories than any other theme. From Sherlock Holmes to Jack Reacher, every crime series character of note has been involved in a festive mystery. It's no surprise that when Soho Press invited its authors to contribute to The Usual Santas, the office on Broadway was inundated with stories. From its beginning in 1986, Soho has set out to publish the best of international crime fiction. So this festive collection is unlike any other in that the writers live in four different continents and have chosen to interpret the seasonal theme in the most colourful and exotic plots imaginable. You will be transported to Sweden, North Korea, Thailand, Ireland, New York City, Utah, Italy, France, Denmark and England. And you will time travel to Cesena in the era of the Borgias, Bath, when Jane Austen resided there. Paris, at the close of the 19th century, a prison camp in the darkest days of the Korean War, and Armagh during Northern Ireland's troubles. For readers looking for the traditional Christmas, there is snow, Santa Claus in numbers, and the birth of a child. Those with a taste for noir will find it in the shape of cunningly plotted killing, casual murder, assassination, and dismemberment. And still there is room for heart-rending suspense and hot romance between the world's greatest consulting detective and the one he always called The Woman. For me, 
One of the joys of the festive season is the opportunity to give and receive surprises. I won't spoil yours as you turn these pages. But I'd better warn you, there are shocks in plenty. Nothing will top the appearance of the heavenly host to those hapless shepherds. But there is plenty here to get your heart thumping. When Christmas Comes by Andrew Claven. After a confession of murder, a sleuthing English teacher will need a Christmas miracle to prove a condemned man innocent. Colorful Christmas lights dapple the family homes in the idyllic lakeshore town of Sweet Haven when Jennifer Dean, a young librarian at the local elementary school, is brutally murdered. There are witnesses and her boyfriend, Travis Blake, confesses to the crime, but something doesn't quite add up. Blake is a third-generation Army Ranger, awarded the Silver Star for his heroism in Afghanistan. How could a beloved son of this tight-knit burg commit such a grisly deed? As a community of military families, a few miles down the road from an Army base, no one in Sweet Haven wants to investigate a war hero like Blake, not even the top brass at the police department. In steps Cameron Winter, a rugged and lonesome English professor haunted by the ghosts of his own Christmas past, whose former lover asked him to prove Blake innocent. The Sweet Haven murder reverberates in his mind, echoing a horrific yuletide memory from his youth. And Winter knows there are darker powers at play here than a simple domestic dispute. If he can solve this small town mystery, just maybe he can find peace from his inner demons as well. High Bridge, a division of recorded books, presents When Christmas Comes by Andrew Claven, read by Adam Barr. The past is a foreign country. L.P. Hartley, the go-between. Prologue. Beneath the snow, beside the lake, just at the fall of evening, the little city looked like a dream of home, a long-lost home, fondly remembered. Even from a distance, seen from a nearby hill, the colored Christmas lights were visible on the trees that lined the main avenue. Decorations on some bright houses in the surrounding neighborhoods twinkled and beamed. And when the street lamps came on at the first deep touch of dusk, the core of the town rose sweetly out of the shadows, silver and gold. In the midst of a rapidly changing America, Sweet Haven looks like a picture from the past, said a man's voice over the image. A Christmas card from a simpler time. The camera drew back and the man who was speaking appeared on screen. He was a young man with fine blonde hair, a TV reporter from the state capitol. He was dressed in a dark winter coat and wore a tartan scarf around his neck. His cheeks were pink with the cold. He spoke into a microphone he held in his hand as he stood with the city laid out behind him, a picturesque backdrop. Just 20 miles away from the U.S. Army's Fort Anderson, Sweet Haven is a bastion of patriotism and old-fashioned values, 
where many active and retired military personnel come to settle down and raise their families. But today, he continued, this sweet haven has been rocked by the arrest of one of its favorite sons. As the reporters spoke, his image and the image of the city were replaced by video of a man in handcuffs being hustled into a police station by several officers. A crowd of onlookers watched the prisoner pass. All of them looked grim. Some were in tears. Travis Blake, a third-generation Army Ranger who was awarded the Silver Star for his heroic actions in Afghanistan, has confessed to brutally murdering his girlfriend, Jennifer Dean, and dumping her body somewhere in the thousand cubic miles of this great lake. When the reporters said the name of the murder victim, her photograph appeared. The man watching the TV report drew a sharp breath and sat up straighter on the sofa. In the dark room, only the light from the television made his face visible. It was a cruel face, soulless, the face of an assassin. Dean, a beloved school librarian at Sweet Haven Elementary School, had been dating Blake for several months, but police say the relationship deteriorated when Blake became obsessively jealous. Now, Will Sharon, the chief of the city's police force, appeared on screen, standing behind a podium. He was a tall, broad-shouldered white man, fit but beginning to run soft around the middle. He was addressing a room full of reporters. Other police brass stood behind him. All the men had a distinctly military presence. All of them seemed somber and upset at having to arrest one of their own. Travis is a man we all know, Chief Sharon said. We all knew his father and respected him. Like a lot of people in this country, the family has had some real bad times, and it hit Travis hard. We thought, we hoped, that Travis's relationship with Miss Dean would bring him out of his dark place. But I guess it didn't turn out that way. It's just a tragedy. The reporter came back on the screen, the dusk deeper around him, the little city brighter in the distance behind him. Now, he said, as the Christmas season begins, this peaceful little town will watch one of its heroes brought before a judge, where he faces a sentence of life in prison without parole. With that, the reporter vanished. The town vanished. The whole scene was gone. The man watching from the sofa had lifted the remote and pressed the power button. Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wabgishik Rice A daring post-apocalyptic novel from a powerful rising literary voice. With winter looming, a small northern Anishinaabe community goes dark. Cut off, people become passive and confused. Panic builds as the food supply dwindles. While the band council and apocalyptic community members struggle to maintain order, an unexpected visitor arrives, escaping the crumbling society to the south. Soon after, others follow. The community leadership loses its grip on power as the visitors manipulate the tired and hungry to take control of the reserve. Tensions rise, and as months pass, so does the death toll due to sickness and despair. Frustrated by the building chaos, 
a group of young friends and their families turned to the land and Anishinaabe tradition in hopes of helping their community thrive again. Guided through the chaos by an unlikely leader named Evan Whitesky, they endeavor to restore order while grappling with a grave decision. Blending action and allegory, Moon of the Crusted Snow upends our expectations. Out of catastrophe comes resilience. And as one society collapses, another is reborn. Moon of the Crusted Snow, a novel by Wapdijik Rice. This is an ECW Press audiobook narrated by Billy Marasti. To my son, Jequis, who shines a bright and beautiful light on our future. Part One, Aguagan, Autumn. One, a crack echoed through the boreal landscape, a momentary chaos in the still afternoon air. In the near distance, a large bull moose fell to its side. Evan Whitesky stood and looped his rifle around his right shoulder, adjusted his neon orange hat, and began a slow walk over to his kill. The smell of gunpowder briefly dominated the crisp scent of impending winter. His gray boots pushed through the yellowing grass of the glade. Evan was pleased. He had been out since early morning and had been tracking this particular bull since around noon. The fall hunt was drawing to a close, and he still wanted to put more food away. Food from the south was expensive and never as good or as satisfying as the meat he could bring in himself. By the time Evan reached the moose moments later, it was dead. Massive antlers propped up its head. The eyes were open, vacant, and the bull's long tongue flopped out onto the grass. Evan reached into the right pocket of his cargo pants and pulled out a small leather pouch, faded and smooth from years of wear. He brought it up to just below his chest and balanced it in the center of his palm. He ran his thumb across the small beaded pattern in the middle, feeling where the beads were missing in the simple bear design. I'll ask Annie to rebead this later this fall, he thought. Evan looked down at the beautiful design, a black bear in a red circle edged in white. At least half the outer white beads were gone, and there was a bald patch near the bear's head and hind legs. Most of the beaded bear itself remained, though. He untied the leather string and pinched some tobacco into his open palm. It came from a plastic pouch of rolling tobacco he bought at the trading post on the way out. He'd forgotten to get the dry, untreated tobacco, or sima, from his medicine bundle before leaving the house. The shredded, manufactured leaves seemed to gum together. He bounced the tiny heap in his left hand before wrapping his fingers around it. He closed his eyes. Ichimanidu, he said. Great spirit, today I say megwetch for the life you have given us. He inhaled deeply and paused. This was still a little new to him. Megwetch for my family. And for my community, miigwech for our health, 
Chimigwetch, for the life you have allowed me to take today. This Mujou feed my family. He still felt a little awkward saying this prayer of thanks mostly in English, with only a few Ojibwe words peppered here and there. But it still made him feel good to believe that he was giving back in some way. Evan expressed thanks for the good life he was trying to lead. He apologized for not being able to pray fluently in his native tongue and asked for a bountiful fall hunting season for everyone. He promised to keep trying to live in a good way, despite the pull of negative influences around him. He finished his prayer with a resounding, solitary miigwech before putting the tobacco on the ground in front of the moose. This was his offering of gratitude to the Creator and Mother Earth for allowing him to take this life. As he took from the Earth, he gave back. It was the Anishinaabe way as he understood it. His head was clear. The adrenaline surge of the kill was brief, as was his remorse for taking a life. Evan had spent nearly his whole life hunting. His father had first taught him to identify and follow moose tracks in the deep bush around their reserve when he was five. I was a young boy Raised in the city Surrounded by people and things Dreaming of a place that I would run to Where the blackbird sings At first I heard the music
Don't